having pressed the pause button in March, you know, everything kind of came grinding to a halt. So everybody was either sent home from studios and offices or from film shoots on the streets of LA or around the country or on sets. Some are continuing in post-production where they're able to work remotely. But, you know, the big question is like sort of how this all starts up again. The immediate effects of the coronavirus have taken a toll on daily business for movie theaters, but COVID-19 affects far more than exhibition. Production has paused virtually everywhere, and for movies that were already shot, the post-production pipeline has been derailed. This week, we speak to Los Angeles Times reporter Anusha Sukui to learn how the shutdown will affect the movie business for the foreseeable future. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. And I'm joined, as always, by my excellent co-host, Daniel Luria, who's Editorial Director of Box Office Pro. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Russ. How's your week been going? Uh, It's, you know, honestly, this one's pretty good. I think it's good. Yeah. We'll go with good. How are you? Always, always good. Uh, You know, New York is uh, getting in in that wonderful sweet spot of not oppressively hot and humid and not freezing cold. So, you know, it's been a a nice sort of uh, couple of weeks where you get to open the windows and and enjoy the outside. Yeah, my garden is exploding. And uh, now I just have to resist the impulse to like go to Lowe's and buy mulch and stuff all the time, which, you know, nobody needs to be doing right now, or I certainly don't. This week, Russ, I'm I'm actually excited to talk about the the topic that we have on the agenda, where we're going to be discussing the Hollywood production pipeline with a special guest here in the podcast, the Los Angeles Times reporter, Anusha Sakui. She is a great colleague of ours here in the entertainment press. I've known her for a number of years, dating back to her time at uh, Bloomberg when she first moved to the U.S. back in 2014. A great colleague that uh, I always love running into over at uh, CinemaCon in Las Vegas. And obviously this year, quite disappointed that we didn't get to catch up in person, but we have her here on the show this week. Welcome, Anusha. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you too. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the big overarching question that we have here is how has COVID-19 upended the production pipeline in Hollywood and in the world at large? Well, yeah, that's the that's the question that sort of um, and and how do, how did it restart? You know, having pressed the pause button in March, you know, everything kind of came grinding to a halt. So everybody was either sent home from their studios and offices or from film shoots on the streets of LA or around the country or on sets. Some are continuing in post production where they're able to work remotely um, and online. But, you know, the big question is like sort of how this all starts up again. And we're seeing various plans and uh, task forces in every state in the U.S. and and in most countries around the world. I I just reported, you know, in the past few days with my colleague uh, Ryan Thornder about, you know, these efforts in different countries to kind of prove how safe they are and as they kind of seems a bit almost like a safety arms race, uh, a bit like we saw with uh, tax incentives where, you know, they're trying to open up as fast as possible, but also boast their, not only their, their, their tax credits, but also their safety measures and how they have it all figured out. So that's been quite interesting to watch, but we're still on pause right now. And um, I think there's a lot of questions about how this all gets back together. 
And yeah, what you bring up about those tax credits, uh, Anusha, I think is a great point in that it's something that really has revolutionized uh, Hollywood in recent years. Russ, I know you spent uh, some time living in Georgia, so you were able to see firsthand the sort of difference that those tax credits have made for film production in that state. Absolutely. And it's a huge difference because I moved to Georgia from Boston in 2002. I actually came from the production community and there was not much of a production scene to speak of in Atlanta at the time when I moved in. And so everything that we associate with Atlanta production now, which is huge, and with Georgia production, really came up in the past 15 years or so, which means to have that all taken away very quickly is a massive and potentially devastating shift. So Anusha, do you have any sense of the financial effect that this shutdown has had on communities around the country and around the world? Uh, it's a really good question. It was actually what, something I was trying to dig out last week. I, I, I spoke to analysts and I mean, you see some numbers. I've seen others report numbers in the, in the billions, but it's hard to really quantify. I think what we know is that at least, you know, hundreds of thousands, uh, according to IATSE, you know, um, Trent presents about 150,000 cast and crew. Um, that's not obviously to talk about the related industries that supply and staff sets, you know, catering, etc. But, you know, they've talked about hundreds of thousands losing hours of work or losing jobs. We know across the industry that, you know, people might have been paid for a few weeks after work, but are largely out of work now and on unemployment. And around the world, we see, you know, countries like the UK, which is, you know, in the top three most times of filming in terms of volume of filming budgets, you know, it's, it's talking about severe recession potentially. So I think it's hard to quantify the actual loss. Um, I think Disney's put some numbers out there over a billion dollars they just talked about. So there is a talk of sort of like a permanent shift or a permanent, you know, like medium to long-term impact in terms of the scale of companies, you know, it, you know, after furloughing, tens of thousands of people at each, at least Disney, um, are all of those going to be rehired? And, you know, we're already talking about when there is a restart in filming, the crews having to be smaller for safety reasons. So this by definition means, you know, less people being employed. And I think, you know, Georgie's a really good example to talk about because, you know, we've spoken to Pinewood in Atlanta, well, Pinewood Atlanta, I think it's called, uh, now that it's uh, recently um, had a change of ownership, but, um, and also Tyler Perry Studios, who, you know, supposedly is, is starting filming very soon on a sort of sequestered sort of set, and very quick, intense shooting times to reduce uh, the amount of time people have to be together or separate from their fam- families and a sort of quarantining. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, how those play out. Um, there's a lot of big questions about insurance, you know, whether states open up, and they open up for California, but they, they open up and whether or not any production is going to want to take the risk um, associated with someone getting sick and legal ramifications of that and also cost overruns. And, you know, insurance companies are largely not covering for anything COVID related right now. So that's a big question. So I see a lot of headlines about things starting up and filming, but I, I, it's not clear to me that they are actually starting. Building on that on that insurance and, and liability question, I know that you're very close to the different unions in Hollywood in, in your reporting. What have you heard from them in terms of what their the protections they're looking for uh, for their members as we start looking to ramp production back up? 
I mean, this is a really vital question. I mean, I think we saw with some Australian productions that were talking about having people double up on crews and, and doing jobs of other people. And, you know, I think you saw SAG-AFTRA, who, you know, represents performers, really trying to push back on, we're trying to project the, protect the jobs of background performers because we're talking now about having, you know, are you going to have crowd scenes? How are you going to do them? And, you know, and also making sure that, like, sure, someone wants to say, you know, we're starting up filming, but the unions clearly putting out messaging out there that they want their their members to be safe and protected. And um, there were reports about SAG-AFTRA, you know, telling members that they, you know, can deny work if to, to come to them if they're being asked to work and they don't feel safe. So I think this is, you know, on top of insurance, a really big issue that the unions are focused on in terms and already working at in terms of coming up with protocols that they feel happy with and talking to the studios about that. And, you know, a production might say, oh, yeah, we go, we want to go ahead. But the unions, I think, are going to have quite a powerful voice in that. I mean, I think that's something that we're going to see play out quite interestingly over the over coming weeks. And there will also be a lot of uh, decisions to be made by individual crew members. I mean, anyone who has even seen images of a movie being shot knows that these are teams of people who work in a very close physical proximity to one another. Hair and makeup, props, those teams obviously have to touch actors. But even if you're not on those teams, people are working shoulder to shoulder because that's just the way the work has always been done. How do you project that someone who works in hair and makeup might approach their job going forward, even if IATSE says, okay, you know, it's okay to go back to work now? Depending on what country you're in and um, which union they are all going to have thresholds of sanitation and practices in different, they're quite detailed. I mean, I've seen, you know, in different uh, protocols that have come up from countries like the United Kingdom, for example, already, I mean, they're just in sort of a proposal stage. They're sort of waiting for feedback from unions, but they're very detailed about the use of dressing rooms or only, you know, single use dressing rooms, reducing actually the number of, you know, makeup and costume changes to reduce the amount of interaction and staffing needed on set and activity generally, um, and interaction between um, actors and um, makeup artists or costumers. I think you can kind of get into the nitty gritty of like, you know, people have talked about lots of different things in terms of PPE for, you know, protective, um, you know, medical grade protective equipment for, for makeup artists, disposing of tools that they use, things like that. But I think Again, it's going to be a question of uniformity of protocols across the board so that, um, and I think that's what the unions have said that they want, that they want that wherever you are in the world, that if you're a member of a union, and this, this is a largely unionized industry, um, that, you know, you're going to have to, that productions are going to have to meet certain protocols and make sure that they can perform their job in a safe way. And then it's going to be up to actors, like, are they going to feel safe? I'm sure there's, we're going to see lots of interesting stories around how this actually plays out. But but in my mind, it's sort of like echoes of what we've seen in some other industries which have been considered essential where you have seen stresses from people, you know, uh, being called to work in factories or warehouses where they, they just don't feel safe. And yet if they don't do that, they lose their job or they, they, they worry that they'll lose their job. Oh, and in a production, we're talking about a situation where anyone that tests positive uh, during that production is likely going to have to be isolated. And uh, if it comes to one of the stars or uh, a director or a cinematographer, we're talking about at least a two-week suspension of the production, which can be very, very costly. It's not like a baseball team or a soccer team that you just sub someone else in. 
Uh, it's going to be a very difficult uh, period. And one of the, the aspects that you bring up, Anusha, that I think is very interesting is how different countries are going to be handling the situation very differently. Right now, are there certain countries that are already opening a little bit more or are further along in uh, being able to restart productions? Are you seeing any studios or production companies going anywhere right now to take advantage of that? So um, in our latest story, we talked to a film commissioner in New Zealand and um, also the Czech Republic has been talking about productions, smaller domestic productions starting up. And those are, for example, underway already, say, in New Zealand. And there are some places where that is the case, where the countries have been very... Iceland, uh, my colleague Stacey Perman has written a lot about Iceland, where Netflix has been very public about filming there, um, really in countries where they're smaller and they have been very uh, successful in shutting down the virus, you know, containing it. So, uh, but the potential for international crews coming in. So, for example, I think it's quite interesting with the case of New Zealand. Yes, they already have small domestic productions going, but Avatar, as far as uh, my understanding, talking to them, is not able to recruit yet because it needs uh, international crews and countries are still working on the whole issue of the restrictions around their borders. So um, that will probably be the next stage. But, you know, the UK um, has talked about, uh, in my interview with Adrian Wooden of the British Film Commission, said, you know, they're hopeful for this summer. We'll see. Ultimately, with all of this in mind, one of the massive questions going forward is, what sort of effects can you project or can anyone project this all having on a release calendar going down the line? Uh, you know, is a movie that was in post-production now that was expected to be released in December going to be delayed? Uh, you know, what about things that were set for 2021? Well, I was, I was actually just talking to someone on a film and that's in post-production. I think the question of like, if something needs reshoots, that's obviously going to delay things a lot more than they might have otherwise. Uh, if there were, you know, there's always usually reshoots, or largely, uh, as very frequently, the films will major films will have reshoots. But in this case, maybe they'll films will go ahead without it. But post production, a lot of it, I've been interested hearing some interesting stories about um, how that's happening, sort of remotely um, and online using sort of virtual production techniques. So the post work, I think, is, is largely being being done. Animation, I think, will probably have a great advantage in this period as, as they've been, many of those artists have been able to continue working. And I think it's also interesting that writers have continued to work during this period so that um, shows and films can be ready to be put into production very quickly um, and, you know, stock up. But at, at some point, you know, they're going to run out of projects if filming doesn't start. And you mentioned the writers. I, I know before... Uh, back in the before days when when there wasn't a global pandemic, there were some concerns about a potential uh, writer strike uh, maybe happening in 2020. If only that was the biggest problem we had to deal with this year right, uh, right. around the world. What are the prospects of that? How is that really uh, tuning up? Does it look like we were going to have to deal in this industry with not only a pandemic, but also a strike? It looks unlikely um, at this point, but it doesn't mean that things are great between the um, Alliance of Motion Picture Producers, or the AMPTP, he's probably not saying the full acronym fully, but uh, the, the Alliance of Producers and Motion Picture Makers who, who negotiate with the Writers Guild and other writers and other guilds. Um, currently, they are 
They have been in talks with SAG-AFTRA about renewing their uh, collective bargaining agreement. And that might come to agreement before the Writers Guild, which just started talks on Monday. There has already been some um, flashpoints between them. So I think before their contract expired in, at the end of, uh, beginning of May, there was expectation that given all the pain that's going on in Hollywood, it's going to be very difficult for writers to sort of go on strike, you know, um, and I, I sort of wrote a piece of that effect. But I think it was interesting to see that I think one concern, maybe if you're a studio, is that the writers have been able to keep going and they have continued to be able to earn money, unlike other, and, and so we're in a strong position. They're not, you know, in the kind of maybe more vulnerable position of other people that haven't been working. I think, you know, we saw some flashpoints uh, between David Young, uh, the lead negotiator from the Writers Guild, and Carol Lombardini, who's the president of the AMPTP, sort of fighting quite publicly about you know, the terms and the parameters of what they're going to negotiate. And it's not been, you know, smooth already, but it's currently in negotiation. And I think there's a potential for, you know, I'm sure the writers will, Writers Guild will be pushing and they're, they're still continuing to fight a very long battle they've been having with the, with the talent agencies. So I don't think it's completely off the table, but it's a little bit, it's, it's much more reduced than I think it would have been obviously without the pandemic. I also wonder about, the effect that this has on awards season, which everyone has an opinion about awards season and whether it's kind of a good or a bad thing, but it's inarguable that the awards season is a giant money machine for the industry and a giant publicity machine, which helps drive audience interest in uh, movies and shows. Do you see uh, or have you heard about potential long-range effects uh, in that sector? I mean, we're really, I think the thing that's really interesting about the awards is how the eligibility um, is changing and how that is impacting the whole uh, windowing or, you know, the sort of the release to home video timetable um, that has been like a real flashpoint in Hollywood. And we've seen some say the, the, the union guild awards talking about uh, and other awards talking about making not, you know, removing the need for a theatrical release as part of its eligibility requirements. And this is like, obviously, this has been like quite a controversial point in the past couple of years. So I think, I think that's going to be quite interesting to watch to see what kind of long-term impact this has on how films are released and the power that theatrical circuits have on movies and uh, movie releases. It seems like they might be, you know, losing a bit of that power and see that window of that typical three-month exclusivity reduce. So I think that's going to be quite interesting. And then, yeah, I mean, the, the award season is a huge uh, part of the industry as some people get bored of it. But I, I love it. I mean, just I never I've covered it. Um, and my colleagues will be covering it this year. I think it's, it's just going to be interesting to see how I mean, are we going to have a theater full of people for in come February um, for the Oscars? I, it's hard to imagine right now, but um, I'm sure they'll find some way of doing it. No, and you 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 say that in the same week that uh, we see a title like uh, Greyhound going to uh, premium VOD through Apple Plus, and it's it's telling as my as my colleague uh, Sean Robbins, the chief analyst here at Box Office Pro, said that's a title whose main demographic were men over the age of fifty, which is also one of the main demographics for uh, for this uh, coronavirus crisis that we have. So as we sort of see the titles that are going into premium VOD from family titles like Trolls World, World Tour and Scoob, while there are parents at home right now wrestling with their children, basically, months on end. And you're going to see probably a lot of these older skewing titles that would go for a target demographic that honestly 
is probably the most sensitive during uh, this return to theaters that we're going to be seeing in the coming months. Right. And, I, you know, my colleague Ryan um, Fonders just, just did the story about this Russell Crowe film, Unhinged, which is supposedly going to be in, you know, one of the first films that gets released in uh, in July. And I've seen some sort of interesting kind of commentary online to that. Like, you know, are people's, is, is the first film that people are going to really like, risk their lives to see be this film? I don't know. I think there's, there's filmmakers that, that, w- that I would, <laughs> like Christopher <laughs> Nolan, I love his films. Like, yeah, I'll go. I'll I'll go. I'll find a, a weekday, and I'll go find a seventy millimeter IMAX screen in LA. I think there's only one anyway. So, but like you know, and then I'll, I'll make an event of it, and I'll I'll buy three seats. And I'll probably won't because that would be really expensive. But you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, that's kind of something I I think like you'll see probably it's going to be super interesting to see how this plays out because yes, I'm sure people want to go to theaters and do do um, return to normality and we are already getting sick of quarantine, right? People already have this quarantine fatigue and some people just don't don't believe it's the same risk anymore. You know, you've seen protests of people wanting to have greater greater freedoms in, in moving around, right? But I think that it's hard to see the same level of attendance and the same consumer behavior in the short to medium term because we've become used to doing things, diff- you know, for a- another way and found things more convenient. Um, people who might not have been, people who might not have been so into having a home entertainment system might have upgraded in this time and, you know, if they could afford it and then thought, oh, actually, it's all right watching this movie at home, whereas they might, but, you know, at the same time, people would always be faithful to the theatrical experience and not think it's any different. So, but in the same way as like, I haven't probably been to a store in six weeks. I've been like, oh, I've discovered, oh, I can get my food delivered tomorrow really easily. It really like it just exacerbates my laziness or my not wanting to kind of, you know what I mean? My inner <laughs> introvert really flourished at this time. No, and that, that Tuesday 2 p.m. screening is going to be the hot ticket once, uh, once we get back up and running. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that dem- dem- that demand is going to shift. I'm going to have these, like, a lot of meetings. Uh, you know, I had to, you know, be out there seeing people, and but I'll probably be at some theater at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Don't tell my boss. As someone who has always prized, you know, the, the 10 a.m. Thursday screening where you can kind of go and sit in a nearly empty house. That's uh, too early for me. <laughs> I feel like things are going to be very different going forward. Yeah. All, all the patterns are going to have to change. Okay. So Daniel, before we go, you know, you and I over the last uh, couple of months have discussed some of our own viewing habits. You had proposed a question uh, that was about what we've been watching that is essentially long form, whether it's, you know, movie or a series, something that's over 200 minutes, because now supposedly we all have the time. Supposedly is the key word there, right? I, I don't think I've ever been this busy outside of my regular sort of work habits. Uh, so yeah, I, I wish we we had it. So the the sort of rules we kind of came up with was I think anything 200 minutes or above, no multi, multi-season TV shows, but limited TV series, I think is fair to say is in the game. On my end, I'm here in a small apartment in uh, New York City that's been hit uh, rather strongly by this crisis. It gave me the opportunity to revisit Scenes from a Marriage, the the famous uh, multi-part television series from Ingmar Bergman. I'm here with my wife, and fortunately, I can say that our uh, very intense close-quarter conversations are nothing like the 
six-hour uh, painful saga of this uh, Swedish couple that uh, that we are currently revisiting. Uh, it's it's a great choice. It's a great choice. Um, Anusha, is there anything that comes to mind for you? Well, yeah, the limited series Normal People, um, which yeah. uh, I've now watched twice in this period. I'm sort of like literally dehydrated afterwards because I, I just cry so much. I mean, I, I really, really highly recommend it. It's based on the book from Sally Rooney and just also a short story that she did. And I think we'll see uh, Daisy Edgar-Jones and Paul Mescal already, who's been you know, described as like the most attractive man in Britain uh, or the United Kingdom, I should say. Because, but that's that's what they called him in, in one interview. Just so like, I mean, you've got some real like stars coming up from that show. Um, well, it's not, you know, it's kind of a limited series and it's inspired. I think we'll see a lot more people talking about it. It's also like a Hulu original. It's interesting. And Hulu has been kind of interesting sort of mine for content over this period, I found. I just realized this question is like the anti-Quibi question. Is that how I even pronounce it? Quibi? Quibi? <laughs> Quibi, Quibi, yeah. Quibi, Quibi, yeah. Quibi. Yeah, it's the Quibi. anti-Quibi. I feel sorry, you know, apologies to, to Mr. Katzenberg for, for the question. Uh, Russ, how about on your end? I think Mr. Katzenberg has bigger problems than whatever <laughs> we have to say about Quibi. Um, so actually, the the I have two quick answers. Um, and the first actually is a Hulu uh, or something that you can watch on Hulu now. And I agree that Hulu has some really terrific presentations at the moment. For me, because technically this is not a multi season show. It is the fact that um, Hulu is now streaming Terriers, which is the uh, one season sort of almost Paul Thomas Anderson-esque detectives get into a weird sort of scenario thing uh, starring Donald Logue uh, by Sean Ryan, who had made The Shield. It's a magnificent show that kind of hit just at the beginning of you know what we call prestige TV now. And I think if that show had debuted in 2013, there'd probably be six or eight seasons of it. Instead, it debuted in 2010, I think. And uh, it was one of the first shows on FX. And uh, nobody knew what it was. It didn't do very well. It was canceled after one season. But it's on Hulu now, and it's wonderful. I'm going to look that one up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was hoping you, it's, I was hoping Terriers would be like 200 minutes of dogs. Well, that would <laughs> also be awesome. <laughs> Well, and then my other answer is on the Criterion channel. I think it's on, I think they're streaming it still, uh, which is the long cut of Until the End of the World by Vim Vendors, which is uh, a four-hour, four-and-a-half-hour kind of post-apocalypse romance. So it's very appropriate for right now, but it's gorgeous. It's got a wonderful soundtrack. It's got William Hurt, a terrific performance. It's a, a thing that was sort of rumored to exist for a long time, and then... We knew it existed and it was difficult to find. And, and now you can see it and it's grand. It's wonderful. Well, Anusha, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been an enjoyable discussion. Yeah, thank you, Anusha. This has been great. And Daniel, great to talk to you again. I'm glad that we could finally dig into this particular aspect of the whole uh, coronavirus crisis. And thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our show and rate us. Uh, you can find the Box Office Podcast on pretty much any podcast service of your choice. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and Bradley Denham and written and narrated by Daniel Laria and me, Russ Fisher. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. Next week.